Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. And it's a special episode for you today. This is a recording of a live event that we did at the Museum of Cambridge on the 27th of October 2023. It was sort of a Halloween event, so it's vaguely spooky in tone. Thanks to the Museum of Cambridge for having us. It's the third event we've done there. We love going. We always have a great time. If you so desire, you could go along to the Museum of Cambridge website. They have an adoption scheme where you can adopt an object. We have adopted the witch bottle, but they have other excellent objects available. Or you can just bosh them some money because they're a fantastic place. Or if you're in Cambridge, why not go and visit? I hope you enjoy the episode and see you on the other side. Nice to be back here again. This is our third talk that we've done here. I say talk, a sort of ramshackle series of conversations. It's It's talking. Talking is a talk. Description. For those of you who aren't familiar, I'm the uh, presenter of a podcast called Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction, which I have boastfully named after myself. I'm Ruth McPhee. We talk about all kinds of strange histories of East Anglia. So ghosts, witches folklore, murders, all kinds of strange things from the history of the region. If you haven't listened after tonight, you can go and do so or perhaps vow never to <laughs> never to hear us again. But um, I'm, yeah, as I say, delighted to be at the Museum of Cambridge. It's such a wonderful place for the city to have and so many brilliant stories in the museum, in the artefacts and objects that are in the museum. So, yeah, always a delight. So I have a couple of guests with me today. Rosie O'Donovan. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, Rosie had a very stressful afternoon trying to get back to Cambridge from the north. Yeah. And I had a message from her at four o'clock saying there's been a crash on the A14. We're not moving. And I was like, oh, God. But (laughs) But she's very valiantly made it in time by racing. I have, however, listened to seven hours worth of Greek mythology podcasts. So if my references (laughs) be that way, that is why. To keep your small children entertained on the the way, yeah. Um, So we may have some unrelated Greek myths flipping in tonight. And Rob Levy. Being silent at first. I'd like to start silent. (laughs) Sure to build in volume as we go. Okay, so thanks all so much for coming. Lots of familiar faces and some new faces as well, which is really lovely. I'm going to be talking today about Cambridge Prison. Ooh. (laughs) Probably, as you all know, we no longer have a prison in Cambridge, but there used to be a jail up on Castle Hill or Castle Mound. I think Hill is a grand word for the mound. I mean, castle's kind of a grand word. (laughs) It didn't used to be. It didn't used to be grand. So we're going to hear a little bit about the history of Castle Mound, the castle that was there and the prison that was there thereafter. And hopefully we'll have time as well to hear about a couple of the cases of some of the most infamous criminals that were remanded and executed. Villains. Villains on, on Castle Mound. So... A very important historical figure starts our story. Nice. It's William the Conqueror. <laughs> this is comfortable territory for someone who doesn't know anything about history. It's like, yep, yes, I know who that is. <laughs> no worries. So I've, started, got the I've got a picture in my mind. Bad haircut. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Angry expression. Well, they had that sort of bowl fit and then shaved and, yeah, like a bowl cut. That's the bowl cut fashions. In the old days, that was an easy haircut to do. <laughs> yeah, now I'm just thinking maybe that's just the fashion. Across the whole <laughs> the <Norman> trend. <laughs> so it was actually William the Conqueror who first built a castle on Castle Mound. This was shortly after 1066. He saw Cambridge as a strategic place in the country, based as it was between the, the kind of the southeast and the north, and he was intent on conquering York in particular. So he thought, this is a good spot for me to kind of set up a castle base. It was the old Mott and Bailey style. Mm-hmm. Which you, is which? Which? <laughs> <laughs> anyone know? I believe the Mott to be the structure atop the mound, and the Bailey is the wall which encircles... Oh. 
around the mound, the protective wall. I've always thought mot moat. No. No, scrap that. Never thought that. I feel like the, the part of this podcast where I know what's going Having on. Having just said history. that, now I'm wondering if I'm completely wrong. <laughs> Maybe it was like French from Norman. Yes. Um, in those days, Cambridge was called Granter Bridge. <laughs> A gasp of surprise. <laughs> I know. Can you believe it? So the castle was involved in, in various skirmishes in the early years. It, in those days, it wasn't particularly well developed. It was just, you know, plonk it on and put the wall around. It underwent quite a, you know, centuries, in fact, of it would fall a bit into disrepair. Someone else would come along and go, oh, let's like do a bit of rebuilding. Let's mm-hmm. increase the, the size, add another bit on. Again, it would fall into disrepair. Yeah. Someone else would do a bit more. So it was, it was kind of, for all that William saw it as a site of strategic importance, it wasn't a continual site of strategic importance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there would be periods where people were like, well, why do we even need a castle in Cambridge? But presumably there was still like the town around. Yeah. So it didn't fall within the Bailey. No, 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 no. no. So it was just... It wasn't like a, a walled city at any point, no. Are um, we in the kind of like eels watery phase? No, no eels in Cambridge. There were no eels in Cambridge? Well, the eels were in Ely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and in, the, in the areas around. Cambridge was... We're just trying to place ourselves historically, okay. contextually. Are we fenny? No has it already been drained? We're, the dr- Dutch no, we're dry. Stuff? We're dry. dry There's already. no eels. Right. Quite dry here. Okay. Yeah. We're leading happy merchanty lives. Yep. Outside the... Bailey of a castle that's on the hill up there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So by the 15th century, we whizzed forward. By the 15th century, it was in a really bad way. No one had cared about it for a while. But the city, of, or as it was at the time, the town, Cambridge itself was seeing um, huge amounts of expansion. As you say, it was a really important market hub. The university, of course, was growing. And there was a great need for masonry <laughs> in the city, in the town. So under the orders of Henry VI, check my Henry, he said, just take some of the stones from the castle and, you know, build your King's College, oh. build a bit of Trinity, build some yeah. great St. Mary's Church yeah. additions. So, so a lot of the masonry actually got taken away from the castle and used in other projects around the town. Bit by bit or all at once? Bit by bit. Bit Until like a big game of Jenga. (laughs) (laughs) Trinity, St John. They take the the lower pieces first. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first time I've heard of masonry without it being falling masonry. But I suppose in the in the olden days it wasn't falling; it was just it was up. It was building up. Yeah, that's up great. Rising it's nice to know that there was a time when it wasn't when masonry was on the up. It wasn't all ruin. Yeah. And so yeah, Henry the the sixth sort of began that, and then through the next set of sort of the, the various kings and queens that happened, and Mary the first up to that point, she even was saying, you know, take some more bits, make Sawston Hall, that kind of oh. thing. But one bit remained unmolested. And that was the old gatehouse. And that was in use as the county jail. And so we begin the talk of Cambridge Prison. I've written in my notes, excitement was to come with the advent of Oliver Cromwell. (laughs) (laughs) The first time that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Such excitement. So 1642, Civil War. Right. Cromwell, of course, was, was local to the area. And he, again, saw Cambridge as being quite a sort of significant strategic place. And he said, quick, let's get the castle built again. Let's do some more... uh... Let's dismantle the colleges. (laughs) (laughs) Smash down King's College. Get that masonry back. Not quite, but they did some various rebuilding projects at that point. Building up some of the ruined bits, putting some new fortifications. I found an article from Enid Porter, who is, for those who are familiar with the Museum of Cambridge, our great heroine and patron saint of the, the Museum of Cambridge. She wrote that some of this article from 1970 she said some of the earthworks from Cromwell's time were visible near the Rex cinema which I was like oh this side of town a cinema and I hadn't ever heard of this but um on McGrath Avenue which is not too far that way there used to be a cinema called first the rendezvous and later later the Rex cinema What's wrong with this side of town that it doesn't have a cinema? No, it just, I didn't... I thought you were saying this side of town. (laughs) I knew that Mill Road used to have, I think, two cinemas. 
over the years. And of course, the, the centre of the town had the old art cinema and, you know, but yeah. I didn't know that there was one in the north of Cambridge. So that was a interesting tangent that I learned. <laughs> Apparently, it was the only cinema in England to be granted an X certificate to show the then banned Marlon Brando film, The Wild One. Oh. So very exciting for Cambridge. <laughs> in the 1950s, the hordes were flocking to the wild one. Um, Trust trust this side of town to have an (laughs) (laughs) ex-rex. So back to Cromwell. He may have brought a project of rebuilding that was quite short-lived. Again, perhaps Cambridge wasn't that strategically important after all. In 1647, just a few years later, Cromwell said, Cambridge Castle is now to be slighted. As in, like, sort of insulted, but not directly? (laughs) (laughs) Given the (laughs) side-eye... <laughs> no, um, it we've means... heard that Cambridge Castle drinks too much at parties. And... <laughs> Shows X-rated films. Yeah, that... does slighted mean something? It means basically smashed into ruin. Oh wow, oh, that's more than yeah. more than a pouncing glance. Yeah. That's like, yeah. and that meant the, the idea was it could then not be used for military purposes by anyone else. Uh... And, the and many castles were slighted. One. This was kind of between civil wars. So um, Cromwell had a, a, a kind of enough power that he could say, round the country, we're going to smash down these various different okay. places which are seen that could possibly be used against us. I feel like Cambridge is quite a roundheady kind of place. You think so? No offence, people. I say with my, <laughs> I mean, uh, with my guillotine earrings. <laughs> <laughs> so just to get it straight, the roundheads were the boring ones, right? And the cavaliers were the sort of fun, yeah. spaniel uh, owning. <laughs> I got that right. That's the right way. I think yeah. there were flaws on both sides. <laughs> Magnanimous. Yeah. I thought, yeah. I thought history says that the Cavaliers were sort of good looking and well painted. They had certainly they were more good looking. No? They had flowing locks. They if were, that's what you. More a, a man. As a man with no locks. <laughs> I do, when a man has flowing locks, my head is turned. Do you think they would have, if you had joined them, would they have given you a wig? They have to, I think. Yeah. <laughs> or you have to become a roundhead. <laughs> Again, though, the gatehouse was left standing. So that's kind of stayed through the years as being the structure that, that remained. Um, is there going to be a bit about what a gatehouse is or looks like? Because I don't have um, a It's sort of... Well, I'm going to actually tell you about the layout. Okay. So maybe you can envision it right. in your brain. It would have been in the... The wall would have gone from it and it would have just been quite a sort of tall structure. But we're not just, you know, it's got different rooms in. And I'll tell you. Okay. I'll tell you the layout. Right. So the layout of the gatehouse jail was thus. The ground floor was called the low jail. This consisted of three um, strong rooms, which were basically big cells. One measured roughly 30 feet by 6.5 feet. Sorry. No, it's metres. Oh, okay. Oh, it's metres. 30 metres? Yeah. That's really big. Sure. It's quite big, but they just crammed everyone in together, oh, it wasn't basically. Individual no, 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 no. <laughs> and that, so the, the largest of the rooms was for the male prisoners because typically there would be more male prisoners. The second was probably about two thirds of the size, and that was for the female prisoners. The third room in the low jail was not habitable. So it was kind of this incomplete, you know, some of the slighting had spilled over <laughs> into the, the door cupboard. <laughs> there was then a room, uh, some steps, 22 stone steps led up to the high jail, which sounds fancy, but it does sound fancy. wasn't that fancy. The debtors were kept in the high jail. Oh, well, white, white collar criminals, that is kind of fancier. <laughs> I think that was the thinking. They thought we don't put them in with the violent criminals. Because when you mix violence with... Financial fraud, bad things happen. And actually, the debtors were were people who'd fallen on kind of hard times. So, and a number of the colleges sent sort of relief to the debtors who were remanded there. So they would have this many loaves a week would be sent by Trinity to uh, to feed the debtors and that kind of thing because they were seen as not being quite so deserving of the conditions of the prison. The first floor of the gatehouse had a room for the turnkey, who was the um, the jailer. So there was also a kitchen on that floor and a few other rooms. The second floor had a few additional cells. And basically, the prison was run as a private enterprise mm-hmm. at the time. So you had to pay to be there. What? <laughs> 
for the debtors. So you that would be <laughs> really unfair. So you would be basically you would have to pay what was essentially like an admittance fee for the sort of admin work of, of admitting yeah. you to but the jail. If jail. you arrive before ten o'clock, it's half <laughs> And then there was a sort of like an upkeep fee that you had to pay while you were there. And it was cheaper to be in the low jail in these big communal rooms. But if you had the money, you could pay a bit more and you could have your own room or like just shared with maybe one or two other people mm-hmm. up in the high jail. This is the, there is a current uh, affairs story right now of somebody who was wrongly imprisoned for some mad mm. number of years. And then when he was pardoned, he they, was asked to pay yeah, it's absolutely prison crazy, for his own board and lodgings. Yeah, he was in prison for 26 years um, and has now been exonerated. Yeah, and he was presented with a bill saying, you owe us for the wrongful imprisonment we enforced <laughs> yeah. you to. Um, you wet 14,000 so um, slices of stale bread. <laughs> <laughs> but I think he's campaigning and there's a, a campaign building for the um, law to be changed around that because that is absolutely insane, insane. that that should be the case. They let him off the it? entrance fee, apparently. But yeah. <laughs> they said, we waived the admittance waived fee. The <laughs> so, yeah, so depending on, on what you could afford, you could have like slightly better conditions than being in a room with, you know, numerous other people. And apparently the conditions were quite dreadful, but we'll we'll come back to that. I like dreadful conditions. <laughs> <laughs> you had dreadful conditions on the A14 in your car, I imagine. Two small boys in the back just screaming oh, into your ears. <laughs> it was awful. So, how did people end up there? Forced to debt. All sorts of reasons. Scoundreling. Yep, many a scoundrel. Villainry. Scallywaggling. <laughs> Tinkering, that there was a special area for the scallywags. <laughs> when, well, we won't put the scallywags in with the villains. No. That's no good. Anyone who was arrested and charged on suspicion of various crimes would end up in the prison. And if you were charged with a serious or a capital offence, you could potentially be in there awaiting trial for a really long time. And it really depended, quite strangely, on what time of year mm-hmm. you committed your crime. <laughs> Is this because the head honcho-y, judgy person yes. used to tour the country? Yes, exactly. The system that was used was, was the circuit of the judges, the judiciary circuit, which meant that the country was divided up into six areas, six circuits, and the judges, there would be a kind of designated group of judges, and they would kind of tour the country, if you like, <laughs> going round to the different county jails, hearing the cases that had built up since their last visit. In my mind, this is like antiques road trip. Really. <laughs> <laughs> They're just going round and round. But I think they were probably very busy, busy men. The assizes, these trials were called, so you would go, initially it was a spring assizes and the summer assizes. Assizes is a singular. So you're technically correct, but um, <laughs> they have the best way the kind to be of... correct. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. If it is technically a spring assize. Oh, is it? Um, but they, it just Doesn't sort of good. fell into parlance that people would use the word assizes. Did you know that that peas used to be? Wait, don't know where this is going. <laughs> peas pudding. Oh yeah, that's sorry. sorry. I, I remember what my fact is. The, the little green vegetable used to be called a peas. Each one was a, was a peas. And people just got so confused, they started calling one a pea. And so peas became the plural, which is why peas pudding is called peas pudding, because it should be pea pudding, because you don't normally pluralise the adjective in a, in a foodstuff. Oh. A sceptical room is brought on board. <laughs> you bring it back to pudding, and people are like, oh, actually, no, this is a good fact. I've changed my mind. Um, so voice. similarly, assizes. Yeah. Peas. Assizes pudding. Yeah. <laughs> so there was the spring assizes was also called Lent, Lent assizes. So initially there were only... Lent assize. Lent assize. <laughs> it's like um, exercise video. <laughs> they were only held initially twice a year. So if you did your crime in September, you potentially were just remanded waiting for the next circuit of the judges, which could be months and months and months away. They did add in an autumn size as well. Nice. So as the kind of cases began to build up to ludicrous proportions, they had to add in a few more of these circuits yeah. of the judges. So just as a sort of example of that, there's a, the case of a man called John Green. Is he our first villain? He's really villainous. He actually ended up being the last person to be publicly executed in Cambridge. And this was in 1864. 
1868 saw the end of public executions. Executions did continue for quite a, you know, 100 years or so after that, but public executions came to a stop. And we'll, again, talk a bit more about that later. So John Green, the circumstances leading up to his execution are quite horrific. He hailed from the village of Whittlesea, home of the Straw Bear Festival, for those who know of the Straw Bear. He had been convicted of murdering a woman named Elizabeth Brown, also known as Betty or Betsy. In March of 1863, a fire was discovered in the furnace room of Whittlesea Maltings. Witnesses who kind of came across the fire saw that there was a body amongst the flames. Once the fire had been extinguished, a doctor called, rather unfortunately given the circumstances, Dr Robert Crisp. Was, <laughs> um, he was brought on site to examine things and they published his testimony in the press of the time. And it's really gruesome and I know that, you know, the papers were sordid, weren't they? But they wanted to sell, didn't they? They wanted they were to gonna sell make the most of a Christmas. Just as now there was an interest in crime and the gruesome details. So his testimony said that bits of the body were badly burned. In some places, he could see charred bones showing through the flesh. Thank goodness it seemed that Betty had been dead before the flames began. There were several things in Crisp's testimony that he said made him suspect foul play. Aside from the good question of what this woman was doing in the maltings mm -hmm. and how the fire had begun. So Crisp reported several of her ribs were broken, which he said indicated some sort of a, a fight or a struggle. Her legs were in a curled position and her hands were clenched as if Crisp observed to repel a violent attack. And also, horribly, her tongue was partially protruding from her mouth, which he said, you see that when people have been strangled. Um. So John Green was quickly arrested. John Green had been um, seen drinking with Betsy the same night. He was a, a friend of the head maltster, William Smedley. Um, and William, William Smedley was... <laughs> Smedley the maltster. He was approached by police who said, you know, what, what's happening at the malt... You know, how could this woman got in? And he said, oh, I let, I let her in with John Green. Mm, he would say for, that, For a night of drinking. And when the police tracked John Green down, his clothes smelt strongly of smoke and he had no alibi, so they were like, oh, it's not looking Solid great. Solid grounds for arrest. <laughs> John Green was remanded just slightly too late for the spring sizes. So then he thought, well, I'll be waiting for the next circuit for the summer sizes. But it was further delayed as the police thought maybe William Smedley also had something to do with mm -hmm. the crime. They didn't... Smedley the monster. Well, he was a goodie in this story. I'm not Anyone a bad monster. He's given the like key detail of like it was definitely this guy because oh, I saw someone I wearing an orange jumper oh. commit. Yeah, like that's <laughs> a suspicious there's a, tall man there's a in an orange jumper. Of flame there. So they, so the police weren't satisfied that they they thought we may not have got you know we haven't quite got to the bottom of it. So we're going to wait again. Summer assizes come and go. John Green is still sitting in Cambridge jail. Smedley's free as a bird. Smedley's free because they can't, they've got really not anything to, no, no. <laughs> Just because of the timings of, of when this has occurred and the way that the circuits of the judges worked, it was months and months and months of John Green waiting to be tried for this murder, which seems a strange sort of a system to me. This is what's great about studying history, though, is that it makes you feel better about your own time. Imagine, <laughs> imagine living in a country where the justice system is horribly backlogged. <laughs> awful. Topical. Awful. When the judge did finally consider the case, Green was found guilty, and he subsequently confessed. And he said, it's true, I did. I, did. I went into the maltings hoping for a night of excitement, and this was not to be, and he ended up in a fight, and he had strangled poor Betsy and then started the fire in the hope of burning the evidence. The executioner for John Green's death, and we shall hear this name again, and we've heard it before on the podcast, was a man named William Colcroft. He served as an executioner for 45 years, and it was uh, hanging, so he was a hangman. He was notorious for the many executions he performed in his career. He executed around 450 people over the course of Oof. his 45 years. But he got paid and the people owning the jail got paid yeah. handsomely for mm. all the admin. And the bread came from charity. Mm. So who's well, getting all, all the... Well, not all the bread, only the bread for the debtors. Who's lining their pockets? 
by keeping these people. Qui bono. Ooh, is that what it is? Lovely. Bit yeah. of Greek history there. <laughs> <laughs> Those podcasts have really paid off. I love to imagine Rosie's young son is just going, qui bono, mummy? Yes, but qui bono. <laughs> qui bono. We come to the awkward moment now as we so often do on this podcast where we're just laughing and laughing and then we're like, but now we have to say something, Rose. Very serious. <laughs> oh, sorry. So, Colcroft was infamous for his preferred method of execution. So now we will come to the distinction between the long drop and short drop mm-hmm. method of hanging. In the long drop method, the idea you drop further. So, so the gallows will be set up in such a way that the victim has a lot further to fall. The drop is really sharp. And most of the time, that will break your neck. So you have a quick death. Colcroft favoured the short drop method. Mm. And this means uh, in this, you don't fall as far and you're more likely to basically to strangle to death. And yeah, this was his preferred method. And there are even reports of Colcroft tugging at the feet of his victims or pressing down on their shoulders to um, nominally hasten the process. But from some of the reports I've read, it sounds like like he quite enjoyed it as a sort of a pantomime. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole idea of public execution is well, kind of... Hideous like... pantomime, isn't it? It's horrible. So he, yeah, he had a kind of a reputation as being quite an unpleasant, ghoulish, ghoulish person. Ooh. He also, there are also reports that if the family of the executed wanted their loved one's possessions or clothes back, Colcroft would charge them. He'd say, if you, you know, if, if you want the dress back your wife was wearing, you can give me some, uh, yeah, give just... me some gold. What a rotter. What a rotter. I feel like like popular culture has given us a few examples of the long and the short drop. I feel like I can picture both of those horrible ways to die. Yeah. And Dancer in the Dark has got a a very long drop execution of of Bjork. And I've got some picture in my mind of like... No, don't. Don't see it. Well, I'm not going to now. Don't watch it, people of the audience. I, um, I watched that years ago when I was at university and I was living in a shared house with four other people and everyone was out and I was like, I'm going to watch Dance in the Dark when nobody's in because I know that I'm going to be like a crying ruin. And just as I started it, my housemate, Dan, who was probably a nice guy, probably the most like unsympathetic and uh, <laughs> logical of, of men, popped in and I was like, oh, I don't worry. He was like, no, 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 I'll watch it with you. And he just sat there like stony-faced the whole way through, like <laughs> unmoved. And then by the end, I was just like hiding behind the sofa, like <laughs> weeping and weeping. And, they, and then he was like, oh, okay, it's all right. And like, <laughs> so that was in a way as bad as, I don't know. Some films you should watch on your own, I think. Yeah. I think there's a... Unless you can guarantee like a similar level of weeping in your, uh, in your housemate. I'm just going to pause because Rosie has, on the subject of, of the drops and the gallows, lovely Rosie has constructed us a little prop. <laughs> which, As some of you might know, I really wanted to make dioramas for a living. I've, I've made a tiny gallows. Hold it along. Hold it along. <laughs> now I've Thank you. Thank you. But now I realise... That I'm the cruel short dropper. Short dropper. <laughs> Spotted that, yeah. Well, you could have a, um, you could make a, what's it called? A, a trap, trap door. door. I could make a trap door. But, so I looked at several different types. There's basically your, your L-shaped one, mm. but that seemed very unstuck. Of the, um, of the game, the game Hangman. The right, famous, exactly. The exactly. famous l uh, yeah. And then there's one that just goes up and across like a washing line. Right. And I thought that is prone to toppling. Mm. In, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't got a sturdy base. Yeah. yeah. But you know how in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, he just yeah. like runs at it. I'd say that's probably for many of us our first introduction <laughs> to the idea of a hanging execution yeah. Yeah. is watching Robin Hood, Prince uh, of Thieves. Is yeah. that with a lot of like kicking of feet? Yes, yes. 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 they're all yeah. scrambling to And there's, yeah. there's a few of them in a row. Yes, and yes. then little John bursts onto the stage and like with his vast strength oh he pushes Ooh, yeah, it yeah yeah pushes yeah, it down yeah right. and, uh, and then it all topples this way so i've gone for a four strutted um gallows have you invented this design of gallows? <laughs> no 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 i think this is for more like i'm thinking that now because i asked reese for no spoilers so i had no i didn't know what time. she knew there was a gallows involved but. <laughs> yeah. no i just make those in my spare time <laughs> and, um, and i was and then she was like oh great i've got one i've got one i'll bring it <laughs> But I think this is more of a multiple situation, like multiple setup, mm. where you've got the different things. But yeah, now that you say it, I did look. There are variants with the trap doors. But mm. I was thinking that we would be earlier in time mm. 
And trapdoors seem quite a moderny kind of. I think a trapdoor is quite a moderny thing. You think, you think no like, hinges in the old days? You've got to have a, like some sort of lever. How did they get out of the hole? Oh, I suppose you could just have a hole Trojan in the horse. ground. Well, I would. You could the, just the, have a the, hole. The Trojan in the... horse famously had a trapdoor that yes, they all fell yeah, out of. Famously mythical. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's not mythical. That's real. <laughs> Hang on, I feel like we need to clear this up. Is, <laughs> the Trojan horse is not mythical. The Trojan horse is real, right? The, the Trojan War may or may not have occurred, but Achilles... <laughs> Achilles... He of the heel. He of the heel, demigods... That so there's, the no, there's no Trojan horse. I'm not joking. What? Seriously, that didn't happen. I'm not an expert. <laughs> you listen to all these Greek history podcasts and you don't know whether the Trojan horse really happened or not. It was a podcast about Greek mythology. Okay, well. So, so the Trojan War, yes. we don't actually know whether it's... Right. Okay. I mean, the podcast... Well, the scales have fallen from my eyes, <laughs> whatever that means. I think if you were going to, like... That seems a really implausible way to win a war. Because of the hinges. They didn't because have trapdoors. The they didn't have they trap actually stuck in the horse. They just <laughs> went in the horse and that's where they stayed. And they're on a Greek island, which isn't known for its timber. And they've been 10 years at war. 10 years at war. They're going to have felled a lot of that already. You're not going to have enough to make a giant horse to fit I think the noise men. of all the hammering as well would have been really sort of obvious. No, because they wheeled it, they built it, and then wheeled they it in. They it across the sea. They no, they no, 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 no. They wheeled it up the ramp. Like the hill. Sorry, hill. Nature's ramp. <laughs> Anyway, anyway I don't think, so I thought, I thought, the whole, the whole. <laughs> I thought I was going for like a mid 17th century type of gallows and I thought that the trapdoor would be quite a technical element. So I've gone for a short drop. This is actually a sachet of salad cream. <laughs> Constructed into a tiny body. Yeah. And, and the salad cream is kept inside the muslin with some kind of wizardry. What, how do you keep the salad cream in? Well, no, it's in a sachet. Oh, that's all I see. <laughs> Loose salad cream. <laughs> um, but mostly, the most important thing yes. that I learned about all of this is how very dark the internet gets <laughs> when you google how to build oh, no. gallows oh no i know you've googled the I wrong know. thing i've googled the wrong can, thing can I, can I just tug on its shoulders yeah <laughs> maybe pull its feet yeah no that was over with oh the blue tack's coming up oh, oh and you also need more than hobby craft hot glue <laughs> still i think it's very fine it's very fine work I'll leave it here. You can you leave it, it there. there. You can hand it round. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it would... You lot are not trusted with this lovely stuff. <laughs> You've So that sort of brings us to the end of part one. And then in part two, we're going to talk about the new jail. Um, there were some elements of reform. A new building came about. Conditions improved somewhat. And then we can look at some more of the infamous cases that came to Cambridge Mound. Excellent. <laughs> we return to Castle Mound and it is time now to creep towards the modern era. Okay. So we did go a bit forward in time I with time John went Green, past. but now we're going a little bit back in time again. The invention of the trap door is ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> Hinges are uh, well on the agenda. So the gatehouse sort of struggled on as a jail, as discussed with these quite poor conditions. But Cambridge was further expanding. Expectations for what a prison could and should be were changing, and conditions in the existing gatehouse jail were not great. There was a prison reformer called John Howard. He visited a number of times in the 1770s and he wrote about the terrible conditions that he witnessed. And John Howard was actually, um, he was a prison reformer, so he was pushing for reform in prisons across the country. He basically went around the country visiting various different prisons and published his kind of masterwork, The State of Prisons, the first volume of which was published in 1777. So he wrote that he discovered hygiene was terrible 
in the jail. There was just one foul sewer that ran through. There was no adequate fresh water supply. Because most of the people in the prison were crammed into these larger cells, the, um, cheap the cheap seats of the prison, any disease that there was would spread very quickly through the prison population. Violence was also, of course, a problem with little way to kind of control behaviour of the prisoners. There wasn't really any outside space that the prisoners could access. So all in all, it was quite a a horrific Mm -hmm. situation for them. So partially influenced by Howard's work, it was decided a new purpose-built prison was needed, a new county jail. This is 1770s. It's still pretty early days for caring about prisoners. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're not looking at an idyllic situation afterwards, but there were, you know, things did improve as a result of the the kind of push towards reform. Your man who burnt Betsy. John Green. He was in the new fancy prison. He was in the future. I was illustrating the uh, situation of the assizes at that stage. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, because of the ruination of the castle, luckily near the gatehouse, there was quite a bit of space. And they thought, we'll just build the new prison here. Up on the hill, you, keep you know, it's, wor- it's working well for us. The location will yeah. we'll yeah, basically good. keep. If it anyone the same escapes, place. they'll just roll down the hill into these <laughs> gullies that we can gather them up. <laughs> I say that's the speedy escape route. Just yeah, rolling but, quickly down the hill. You've got a gully at the bottom to gather them up. <laughs> And they get swept up into a sort of moat system and then a lazy river. A rap- them back. Uh, like a rapids. Rapids. A rapids, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a rapids. It spits them out back at the gatehouse. Like centre park. <laughs> so the new Cambridge jail was built in the first decade of the 1800s. And this was in the area where the old Bailey had been, which now makes me wonder about my Mott Bailey distinction. But uh, let's not it worry about that now. About the old Bailey? Yes. The, uh, the law courts. The courthouse. So wait, wait, hang on, what is a Bailey? Well, come on, Rob. Sorry, no, no, wait. <laughs> Oh, no, sorry. We'll Google it later. We'll Google it later. The prison was designed by Jay Byfield, and it had what was called a detached radial layout. I will tell you about it now. It consisted of a central octagonal building. Mm -hmm. The octagonal building had a chapel, and then the governor's quarters were also in the upper floors of that building. Four wings were then built around the central building, and then there was a wall that encircled the whole thing. The turnkey had rooms. The gatehouse was still there, so the turnkey sort of stayed in the area. But the the wall around the outside meant that there was secure outdoor space. So there were courtyards built in to the new design. And the space inside and outside the prison was divided so that male and female prisoners wouldn't mix. Again, the debtors had their own wing, so they were still kept to a separate area. Importantly, cells were now solitary, so this was like a big change from the old prison. And there was a specially designated area where any prisoners showing signs of disease could be separated from the general prison population to try and stop this problem of the spread of pestilence through the prison. I think I know of this design. And there was one bit, it's singular jails, supposed to be nicer, singular rooms. Mm. But then there's this kind of, this idea of the watchful eye in the middle. Mm. So the prison officers can see down every single kind of the bloody wing of that. Yeah, there we go. Um, so that's Jeremy Bentham's idea Jeremy of the Bentham. Uh, panopticon, which had already kind of come into... This is, this is, this is not a long before made into in, yeah. a building. So the idea that the, the governor and the guards can have a central viewpoint from where they can see what's going on. Chris and I went to a really amazing old prison in Porto in Portugal, which was one of the old panopticon prisons which had a sort of central tower and from the tower the guards could sort of see into all the different wings and it's now a museum it's amazing if you ever go to Porto it's a really incredible but you really can see that idea of the watchtower in the center and the kind of idea of wherever you 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 can't hide basically from and the idea is supposed to be that you then you don't even need a guard because yeah, you just know that there's there's always an opportunity to be watched. Right. Yeah, so you don't keep, even need to watch. You, but they do watch. Oh, they do. <laughs> you <laughs> have do to they? watch. <laughs> and there was provision for fresh water as well. So there were reservoirs that enabled fresh water. There were different areas for prisoners to walk. There was even for any prisoners that were ill, there was like a special rooftop area that they could walk on that kept them separate from the rest of the prisoners. A roof terrace? A lovely roof terrace. This sounds like it's taken up a lot of land. We're now, I'm imagining the space. There's the hill and there's... If you think of where Shire Hall is, Mm. that's the area. 
Yeah. And also bear in mind, it's not a prison on the scale of something like what's a big prison? Wormwood Scrubs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because then and now, Cambridge, in comparison to some towns, it was a small, relatively small town and crime rates were not, you know, you weren't housing hundreds and hundreds of people at a time. So you didn't need an absolutely vast complex. It was it was a kind of relatively small fry, as prisons go. And there was also, for a short amount of time, a town prison, which was situated on the edge of Parker's Peace. Mm-hmm. So there was, let me see, between 1829 and 1878, there was a town prison, which was for the, the local criminals, whereas the, um, the Castle Mound prison was the county jail, so people would be brought in from all around the area to that one. The most notorious prisoner to be housed in the Parker's Peace Jail was perhaps Cambridge man Robert Browning. In 1876, he murdered 18-year-old Emma Rolfe on Midsummer Common. Um, and that's one of the kind of the, the crimes that shocked the, shocked the town at the time. And he was remanded in the town jail and he was executed at the town jail. So they did also, when the situation called for it, they would erect the gallows at the town jail as well. But it didn't, you know, it was, it was only sort of 50 years or so that that was standing. We've been very casually uh, bandying about the word remanded. Mm. Have you got anything to say about what that means? <laughs> is, it, is it the same as being imprisoned? Or yes. Is it, right, okay, it just means imprisoned. Yes. Okay, great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum, not murdering an 18-year-old girl, a man named Robert Cannon was jailed for three months in the town jail. In, what could be the other side of the spectrum it, well, to murdering an 18-year-old? In 1835, for trying to bribe people into voting for the Tory candidate at a local election. <laughs> <laughs> Three months. Three months. The whole sort of range of different kind of crimes where criminals were there. So uh, back to the new prison. So it was still a 19th century jail. So it's, you know, it's not great, but conditions were on the whole much improved. But people would still be committed to the jail for some really minor crimes, as I say. So you'd have people that were in there for arson, rape, murder, but you would also have people who were in there for things like fraud, like petty theft, uh, that kind of thing. When a death sentence was given, the gallows were erected outside the prison walls on Castle Mound. Still public at this point. Still public for, for most of this period. On Castle Mound, as in at the little diddle top? Well, I envision that you would make use of the slope to facilitate the long drop, right? I don't know. You would have to, like, cantilever it off the side of a... Here speaks the the woman who's built a balsa wood gallows. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm expecting that if they're erecting it on a regular basis, Mm. that it's in someone's shed and they'll have to put it together it each time. You know, you'd have to... I feel like, like, um, something like, simple a, uh, like a marquee or something that you just keep <laughs> for the summer. Get the gallows out. But then the top of that hill seems too small for a gallows. Yeah. Because it's very small up there, isn't it? Mm. You don't need much space for it. What, you what don't do you need? need loads of space. Just a well, stick in a well. Yeah. All of that. It doesn't have to be that grand, though. Yours is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Cambridge was just a small town in the 18-whatever. Oh, that's true. They might have just had the classic... Some of the earliest executions that took place on Castle Mound gives us an idea of the the range of crimes. So the death penalty was still in force for quite an astonishing range of crimes, actually. A fellow named Bird executed in 1812 for forgery. Hmm. Um, Depends on what you're forging, doesn't it? If you were forging the old crown jewels or whatever. Sorry, not the old (laughs) crown jewels. I mean, mean the crown jewels. (laughs) The following year, a man named Daniel Dawson was executed. He'd poisoned a horse at Newmarket. Oh, don't mess with people's don't horses. Horse, yeah, you can't mess Boy, with people's yeah. horses. Don't mess with horses. Others for more serious offences, including arson, housebreaking, rape, and of course, murder. Executions of the more notorious criminals, if the cases had attracted a lot of press attention, the public executions might be attended by thousands of people who would come even from all around the area. Mm. to see the... Wasn't a lot to do in those days, I guess. Mm. It's such a weird idea, that, isn't it? Mm. That you would... Would you, you if you'd been come. there in the 1830s, would you have gone, Ruth? Um, it's hard to say, isn't it? Mm. I don't know. If it were me, not. my brain, in an 1830s lady... <laughs> <laughs> um, and often, often it was... I'd probably say no, you but then... No, you might have a different brain. But I might be, I might be different. Often it was more women than men. 
that mm. attended and they would wear their fanciest attire. It was almost like a society event, something to be seen at. The, presumably then there was a bit, a bit like Nebworth. There was like a lot of before and after support acts or whatever. Because you, if you're going to come from miles away, you've got to have it's jugglers true. and, and bear baiting. Yeah. And, and yeah, candy floss. Candy floss, a dancing jongleur. I don't know what, what did they have in those days. They would also um, sell souvenirs at some of the, the most high-profile executions. So Balsa Wood memorabilia. Yeah. <laughs> I would have made a rockin' trade. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, after the executions, people would try and get souvenirs, so they'd like try and get a bit of the gallows or the bit of the oh. rope that had been used that, that they would take away as memorabilia of the day. Like, um, I took the set list from a reef gig that I went to recently. <laughs> In Rob's mind, it's 1997. <laughs> They must have been delighted anyone wanted their set list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were very friendly, but it was, um, it was gaffer taped to the floor. That's what they do with set lists. So the, the roadie had to like carefully peel it away I thought you were, you were just like launching in. Trying yeah. to no, no, I politely off. stood at the crash barrier waiting. Oh, can, I, can I have the set list, I said? And he said, yeah. Let me just... Let me just very slowly peel it away. So, <laughs> it doesn't quite so the equivalent would be you standing very patiently and politely at the crash barriers going, can oh. I have the shoelaces? <laughs> so the, um, the new prison on Castle Mound stood until the early 1930s when Huntingdonshire Jail took over Ooh. as the county jail. And it was then demolished, and parts of the stonework were used to build the Shire Hall building, which still stands on the same site. More stone recycling. This stonework has been all over the place. Yeah. Well, it's hard, you know, it's a lot of work getting new stone. Especially in a yes. chalky landscape. Yeah. In a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a sort of very potted history, but for the final section, I just wanted to talk about another notorious case, which was a double execution which took place on Castle Mound, the last double execution in Cambridge. This took place in 1850. Just wondering what a double execution is. <laughs> did, they, did you execute someone twice? Is that <laughs> <laughs> like um, a twice cooked chip? Yeah. <laughs> no. Short drop um, and then long drop. <laughs> two. <laughs> two people. Right. Two together. Face, face to face. Well, I don't think so. Oh, okay. <laughs> Like, it's not a romantic liaison. No. <laughs> no, so it was it was the case of Mary Reader and Elias Lucas. They were executed together because they had been convicted together of the same crime. I'll tell you a bit about them. Mm. Lucas was an agricultural labourer, not uncommon at the time. He lived in Castle Camps with his wife Susan. That's nearish Newmarket. He and Susan had been married for around four to five years at this point. And as the year 1850 began... Susan was pregnant. I believe it was their fourth child. He was known to be a cheerful and friendly young man. A report from the time says, he would sing and whistle about his employment and was as blithe and gay as any of the village rustics which whom he companioned. Susan was described as kind and good-hearted and as looking younger than her already quite young 20 years. So and to everyone... Kids. Yeah, I know. That's a lot. It is. Too many. Too many by 20. To everyone that knew them, they seemed outwardly to be a happy couple. Susan had a young sister. Younger, sorry. Not that young. And this was the aforementioned Mary Reader. (laughs) Mary had been working as a servant in Cambridge, living in the Castle End area of Cambridge, which is this area in which we now sit. In January of 1850, Mary left her previous employer and went instead to live with her sister and her brother-in-law in in Castle Camps. And the plan being that she could help Susan through the later stages of pregnancy, help out around the house, help with the other children, that sort of thing. But things took an unexpected turn for poor Susan Lucas. Although she was in generally good health, towards the end of February, quite out of the blue, she perished. No! She had a very, very short illness... Very short, and then she that was swept it. away in a lazy river, probably. So, what happened to you in those days? Because she's called Susan. <laughs> <laughs> so, because of the very abrupt nature of, of her death and the previously good health she'd been in, this immediately raised suspicions of foul play. Just drop dead. 
Well, no other she, details. She got she um, she got very ill with uh, vomiting and um, cramps and that kind of thing, and then ran very rapidly deteriorated. deteriorated and and died. But it seems so. We've on the podcast we've had quite a lot of cases where people die in very unexpected circumstances, and people don't really seem that bothered, and they're like, oh well, you know, yeah, <laughs> fine. I'm guessing must happen. Yeah, but in this case, it seemed strange enough that they ordered a post-mortem. So the contents of the stomach were examined and what should be found but grains of arsenic. Oh. Foul play. Foul play. Either foul play or the eating of arsenic. <laughs> That's your only two options. A combination of the two. Or, or both, yeah. A bit of arsenic followed by a poisoning of arsenic. That would be very unlucky, wouldn't it? And as, again, we've, we've kind of covered this in other episodes, but because arsenic's a metal, it stays in the stomach. So if you have other poisons which are organic, if enough time has passed, you can't find traces of them. But with arsenic, it just stays in there. And where does it come from? How do you get yourself some arsenic? Um, it was used very commonly as rat poison. But again, like, is it a, like a metally plant? It's, it's well, like, <laughs> it as a metally plant. I'm just wondering where you might harvest some do, from. Do metals, do metals grow on trees as well, Rose? Um, it was it was made available as like a white powder. Okay, so out the maybe out oh, the like out of the ground. Okay, out like uh, right, like but grains. You said grains. Oh, but you meant like grains of salt rather yeah. than grains as in grains of wheat. Yes, gotcha. exactly, exactly. Gosh, <laughs> English is very Apologies. tricky, isn't it? <laughs> All these unclear words. Okay, so no, it's like like a, a chalky substance. We've got it out the ground somehow, and the grain's a bit fun. And then, in, and you could go to the chemist, and you could buy some arsenic. And it, we, people used it, as I say, for, as a rat poison very commonly. Also, a mole poison. Oh, poison on a mole farms and Why things. Would you poison a mole. They're just they popping up in your fields. I know, but they're small, and fields are big. <laughs> How would you poison it? Just lay it into the earth. Oh, more more commonly a rat poison, but um, also <laughs> all, so many cases of just people using arsenic to poison their relatives and yeah. Uh, yeah, and fat, the balls. yeah. <laughs> so foul play was obviously afoot. The Lucas premises were searched, and a stash of arsenic was found in an outbuilding in a little packet. Further investigations revealed that the husband. Elias Lucas, the arsenic had been actually found at his workplace and his boss had said to him, oh, can you take this away and get rid of it? But he had not taken it away and got rid of it. He'd brought well, it home. He'd taken it away, but not got rid of it. No, yeah. he'd got rid of it into Susan's stomach. Uh, well, that's one way. Um, <laughs> so the key suspect was all too clear. However, it wasn't the husband that had been preparing food for Susan. Mm. Mm. Ooh, it? it was her sister Mary... So suspicion now fell upon the pair. They were both arrested and brought to the Cambridge jail in preparation for the Lent assizes. While on remand and awaiting, they were both questioned, questioned about the death. Elias admitted to an affair with his sister-in-law, but he said he didn't know anything about the poisoning. But he was there because he got the arsenic, and she was there because she was making the food. So they just went, we're not going to, like examine this any further we'll just put you both in prison well the suspicion was a plot okay that they had been having an affair and there was a plot to get yeah. rid of Susan yeah. basically also don't forget they are awaiting the assizes right? they're so awaiting they're not, the assizes they're so... not in prison per se they're more remanded I would say is that fair <laughs> <laughs> in the lovely wings of, uh, of Cambridge jail Mary, on the other hand, said she had given Susan a mess, which was basically like a scramble of like bread and water, mm-hmm. sort of made into a sort of a gruel. And she said, I did put arsenic in it, but Elias told me to do it. Oh. So I it's don't a mess. Think that's a good enough excuse. It's a bit of a mess. And Mary said she'd had a conversation with Elias previous to the murder, talking about a woman named Catherine Foster. Catherine Foster had quite recently been hanged in Suffolk because she'd put arsenic into her husband's dumplings and she was found guilty of murdering her husband and was hanged. And Mary was like, oh, we had a chat about Catherine Foster and said, oh, we could do the same thing. Clearly, the hanging of Catherine Foster (laughs) has not had any impact on on her thinking in this case. It's one of those, how does the story end? I can't remember, but I'm sure it's <laughs> Sure it works out really well for everybody. Just goes to show the death penalty is no deterrent. So they went ahead with the plan, she said, and they um, poisoned Susan. And I think, I feel like they weren't the brightest pair. 
perhaps. Mm. And in fact, in a report made by a local paper after their death, uh, Mary is described as singularly dull of comprehension um, and was looked upon by those that knew her as a soft, stupid girl. I wonder if she made a good dumpling, though. (laughs) Irresistible. If I were going to be poisoned, a dumpling would be a fine way to go. (laughs) What about a gruel of bread and water? (laughs) No, no. Yep. But later... Mary made a second confession, and in that one she said, I gave the arsenic, I did mean to do it, but actually Elias didn't know anything about it. So who knows what the truth is? And he continued to protest his innocence, but it was all for naught because the judge, when the time came, found them both guilty of the murder. The date was set as the 13th of April, a Saturday. From the early hours, the streets of central Cambridge were thronged with crowds, One report from the time says that there may have been as many as 30,000 visitors who came to the town to see, wearing their fanciest clothes, many of them, as I say, uh, women. The gallows had been erected the day before in front of the jail facing Castle Hill, and the time for the execution would be 12 noon. The streets were busy, but also apparently was the river. People were climbing onto boats to get onto the river to get a better view. The executioner who had been selected for the double hanging was again William Colcroft. Colcroft. A busy man. Well, I mean, 30,000 people. You make a good point. You do have to entertain 30,000 people somehow. There must be other stuff going on. There's no way it's just There must be a a trade. Um, They were apparently drinking in the marketplace. Uh So I I think probably for some, drinking was part of the entertainment. I bet the Chemical Brothers were on at two or something like that. That's usually what happens. When you put them on pre... Oh, it's, that's right. The hanging was at 12. Sorry, yeah, yeah they're right. Chemical ones at 10, yeah. Someone like Moby for afterwards. Moby for afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Calm people down. So they had killed Susan. Well, Mary definitely had. We're not quite sure about the guilt of Elias. But I think we can regard the execution with the horror that it deserves. Before they were led out to the gallows, both prisoners shook hands with the governor, Mr Orridge, who had, by all accounts, treated them very well. And thank goodness... It being William Colcroft, it seems that their deaths were actually very quick. The reports said that they both died very quickly with little struggle. The same report from the Cambridge Independent Press says, silence fell when the moment of the drop came and after the pair were dead, onlookers scurried away as if disgusted. Perhaps with themselves as much as the scene before them. Uh, Think ye. Mm. And there were many who hoped for the end of public executions and actually whenever there was a high-profile case like this, there would be petitions to the government saying, and and to the, the governor of the jail in question saying, can we not bring an end to this practice? And once public executions were got rid of in 1868. The next step was then, of course, to petition for the removal of the death penalty entirely. Again, slight tangent, but the death penalty continued for treason for many more years than it did for murder in this country. So I think don't think anyone it wasn't in use but i think even into the 1990s on the on the law books treason was a offense punishable by death in a funny sort of way given how obviously disgusting it is to do public executions once it goes behind closed doors it's sort of even weirder because then what are you mm-hmm. doing it for yeah it's, then it's just totally pointless and bonkers or at mm. least if it's going to be a spectacle you can be like, don't do bad yeah. things because otherwise this yeah. is going to happen to you mm. but once you carry on doing it in secret then Who's Queen Bono from that? <laughs> Thanks for bringing that one back. <laughs> That's Latin for who benefits, by the way. That's worth pointing out. The hanging of Elias Lucas and Mary Reader was the final double hanging. A sort of strange detail to that case is that, that came out in the papers afterwards is that earlier the same year, a relative of Mary Reader had a, a young male relative, not sibling but a cousin, or had been hung at the same spot for arson earlier the same year with two other men. Wow. So that kind of, the case got a huge amount of attention in the press and I think those kind of details were brought in to add those further elements of interest. And then, yeah, John Green, as we discussed earlier, was the final public execution on the site. Behind the, once once public executions finished, some of the more notorious cases that were hanged behind the scenes were Walter Horsford, he was the St. Neots poisoner. He was convicted of poisoning his cousin uh, with strychnine and was also suspected of, of three other murders around the same time. And then the last person to be executed in Cambridge was Frederick Seekings 
1913, and he had killed his partner, Martha Beebe, after a drunken night out in Brampton. And that was the last execution in Cambridge, 1913. Strychnine is in lettuce. <laughs> is it? Yes, it is. Beware. Okay. In low quantity, I don't think he just was like feeding her every <laughs> <laughs> 10 lettuce, lettuce a day. Get it in. <laughs> it's also good for thinning the blood. Oh, okay. Which is why lettuce is good for you, but too much of it. Terrible. I feel like you'd need a lot of lettuce to die of strychnine poisoning. So that's um, slightly derailed my ending, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> So that is a very brief history of Cambridge Jail with a few details along the way. And have you, any final thoughts? Or I was going to end with, that's, that's about the size of it. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Um, well, I, uh, thank you all so much for coming. I hope you've enjoyed it. And, yeah, thanks so much to the Museum of Cambridge for having me. Uh, thank you guys all for coming. Uh, it's been lovely. And, yeah, thank you. There you have it. The live event at the Museum of Cambridge talking about the gruesome history of Castle Mound. Hope you enjoyed it. We're hoping to do another event at the Museum of Cambridge next year. So why not follow us on Instagram, Ruth underscore is underscore stranger, and you will hear about any such events that come up in the future. Now, Christmas is coming. Hear that jingle of Christmas bells. See that sparkle of tinsel festooning your house. We have special plans for December. We're going to be doing a sort of Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction advent. Not one every day, that would be madness, but we will be releasing um, a mini episode every Sunday through December as we approach towards Christmas. So come and join us. Again, if you follow our Instagram, you can hear all about the episodes as they get released. And we will build up to Christmas in a Ruth is Stranger style with gore, ghosts, spooks, all kinds of things like that. Okay, see you soon.